Well, a normal part of any German worship service is a time where people bring greetings from other churches that they may have visited recently. So I want to bring to you greetings from Marion Baptist Church, where we were at last week, that's here in Ohio, from Maranatha Baptist Church, it's our sending church up in Clarkston, Michigan, and then also from the Bibelgemeinde Gotha over in Germany. If you were to go online and type in the phrase, ordinary people doing extraordinary things, you would find a lot of stories about people who just seemed very ordinary. Probably none of them ever voted to be the most likely to succeed, just people who fit in and blended into the crowd. And yet when they were put in just the right set of circumstances, they seem to accomplish extraordinary things. War heroes are often talked about in this vein, just that farm boy from Iowa who gets put in just the right situation and saves his whole platoon. Sometimes missionaries are referred to this way. Joe Marino was such a man. This is not your pastor's brother, by the way. This was back in 1943. Five of the first New Tribes missionaries had decided that they were going to reach a tribe of people in the jungles of Bolivia known as the Aorus Indians. They went off into the jungles to locate them, and they quickly found them, and then all five were killed by them. Well, there was this man who worked as a maintenance worker on the mission compound. His name was Joe Marino. And he decided to take it upon himself to make contact with those Indians. But he did it differently. He began to, from a distance, follow them through the jungles and just observe them and learn their patterns and their habits. And eventually, he got to where he could predict where they would go next. And so he started to leave small gifts where they would find them. And after three years of just slow, laborious, painstaking work, the first friendly contact was made with the Aorus Indians. And then more time went by as they gained some confidence in each other and learned a bit of the language and there are Aorus souls in the kingdom of God today from the work of this one guy, Joe Marino. And some would say that Joe Marino was just an ordinary guy who did extraordinary things. But I think that scripture will bear out that there is a, a better description for a missionary like Joe Marino or Hudson Taylor or Adoniram Judson, people who seem to accomplish extraordinary things. And I think this description fits not only them, but a pastor, a well-known evangelist, or even the lady who is a labor of love, cleans the church building. And that description would be, these are ordinary people responding appropriately to an absolutely extraordinary God. We're going to look at Romans 12.1 today, 
But just before we do, I'd like to pray with you. Heavenly Father, you are clearly an awesome, amazing God. I pray that you would help us just to clear our minds of much of the foolishness, nonsense in the world that goes on around us, and focus today on the truth of your word, and just to give consideration for how we are responding to an amazing God. Thank you, and just ask that all that is done this morning will bring honor and glory to you. We pray in Jesus' name. So as we look at Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, this is my desire that each one of us will just really give consideration to how we are responding to an awesome God. Romans 12:1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. Now, because we've read this many, many times, it doesn't really strike us as being that dramatic a thing, but think about how would you respond if you were on a dark street and a guy walked up to you and said, I want you to give your body as a living sacrifice. You'd probably run screaming. I would too. This is a dramatic thing Paul is asking them to do. He says, I want you to give your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, there has to be some reason why he thinks he can make this kind of a request to these people, and they'll actually listen and respond positively. Well, in Paul's writing, well, he, the, the answer to that question is really summed up in one word in that verse, and it's the word, therefore. There's something that Paul has already told them that makes him believe that they will now respond positively to this really dramatic request. In this case, it's not difficult to figure out what the therefore is. See, Paul, not always, but very often writes his letters in the way that he wrote Romans, where he has a doctrinal section where he explains a truth, and then a practical section where he tells people how they are going to live that out. What we have in Romans chapters 1 through 11 is the most extensive explanation of that soteriology, that doctrine of salvation, that we find anywhere in Scripture. If we looked any place in those first 11 chapters, we could be amazed at how great a salvation God has provided for us. And if we had about a year or two, we could go to all 11 chapters. But today we'll just go to one place. Now, believe it or not, I did not coordinate any of this with Aaron. But in chapter 4, Paul is expounding on the argument that he just made in chapter 3. And that is that salvation is by faith and not by works. To make his point, he uses two people that would be well-known and revered by his Jewish listeners. He uses uh, Abraham and King David. He brings to mind a a story about Abraham. 
Now, this took place after Abraham was in the promised land. Remember, he had been called by God from the Ur of the Chaldees, and he told him he was going to send him to a place that he'd show him when he got there. And he made a number of promises to Abraham. Among them was that he would have a multitude of descendants, and one of those descendants would be a blessing to all the world. Well, many years have gone by since that promise was made. And on this particular night, God speaks to Abraham again and reiterates those promises. He particularly reminds him that he is going to have a multitude of descendants. And this time, Abraham starts talking back with God. And he says, God, how can this be? I'm an old man. My wife is an old woman, well past time to have children, and we have no children at all. Everything that I own, and you, you have blessed me greatly, but everything I own is going to go to one of my servants. God says, Abraham, I want you to step outside your tent for a moment here. It was nighttime, and Scripture doesn't tell us what kind of night it was, but I have visions of one of those nights where there are no clouds, and maybe no moon either. Now remember, this is at a time when there weren't cities full of lights. If you've ever had the opportunity to be in a place where you are miles and miles and miles away from any cities, and then all the lights are turned off, you know that the sky that you see there is very different from the sky we see when we look up here in Orville. Well, this is the kind of place that Abraham was. When you look up at a sky like that, it is virtually white with stars. You can, Abraham didn't see this, but you can see satellites just whizzing by. You count shooting stars until it gets to be old hat because you see them regularly because they're so clear. It's on that kind of a night where God says, Abraham, look up at those stars. If you can count them, you could count the children that will come from your own body, your descendants. And then it says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Well, Paul, or yes, Paul goes to pretty great extents later on in the chapter to point out that this is before there was really anything else he could have done. He didn't even have the right of circumcision yet. The law wouldn't be given for several hundred years. He simply believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then he brings up David also, because David, of course, lived long after circumcision had become a normal thing for Jewish people. He had the law for a long time. He knew the law well, and yet David said, he spoke of the blessings of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, saying, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. The point is that Paul was trying to make is that salvation is now and has always been by grace alone, through faith alone. And then he tells them why it has to be that way. Before we get to the why it has to be that way, 
I'm going to tell you a story. Our second son was diagnosed at about eight weeks with a very rare blood disorder that to this day doesn't really have a name. And basically, he didn't make any red blood cells. That was normal for a baby to not start making red blood cells till after five, six, eight weeks. Till then, they're living off what they had from their mother. Well, Richard did not start making them. And we came very close to losing him. With medical intervention, he eventually, he, he survived long enough, about a year, till his blood bone marrow started working, and he's doing fine today. Well, seven years later, we are expecting twins. Naturally, we're concerned about this. So we went and found a pediatric hematologist, or simple terms, a baby blood doctor. Explained all the details to him, and he walked down the hall and pulled a, a uh, medical journal out and read and came back and started talking to me as though he knew all about this disease and assured me that we had nothing to worry about. This is so rare. And the fact that your son is now seven years old means he really didn't have it anyways because people just don't live with that. And there's really nothing that we need to worry about. We said, nevertheless, we want to be overly cautious here, and we think that her, the, the baby's blood is going to need to be monitored more closely because we, when, when it starts going down, it goes down quickly. And he says, well, yes, we'll do everything that's necessary. Well, then the babies were born, and sure enough, when they went for their six-week checkups, their blood count was low. Again, that's, that's not unusual. But uh, they did another blood check about a week later, and it was significantly lower. We got a call from the doctor, and uh, then the argument began. He said, we need to check it again in a couple of weeks. And I said, we probably should check it again today. And we went back and forth, and he finally regretted or reluctantly said, well, all right, we'll check it again next week, but we're wasting our time. And I asked the doctor a question. I said, doctor, I, I know you don't think our girls, or didn't know they were girls at the time, that, that these, yeah, they were born then. Yeah, we knew they were girls at that time. <laughs> I know you don't think our girls have this disease, and, and we pray they don't. But if they did, would they live for another week? And his answer rings in my ears like it was yesterday. He said, well, I think so. I hung up on the doctor then. Because some things are just so important, you don't accept an answer of, I think so. We called the doctor that took care of our son. He was about 150 miles away. <clears throat> we filled him on all the details, and he agreed. He says, yes, the girls need to be monitored very closely. I said, I'm ready to put them in the car and drive them to you. He said, give me one hour first. 
I said, okay. About 30 minutes later, he called back. He said, I've done some checking, and right now, the country's foremost expert on this particular disease is the head of the oncology department at Detroit Children's Hospital. He's waiting for you to get there. So we put the kids in the car and made the about an hour trip to Detroit Children's Hospital, and they were waiting for us. Within two hours, they had been admitted to the hospital with a blood count of below two. If you're not a medical person like most of us, we've, we've learned a normal blood count for an adult is about 14. An adult with a blood count of two would be in a coma. Children are very resilient. They were just a little lethargic, but wouldn't have lasted much longer. Well, as you can see, they survived. And her sister is happily married in Switzerland right now. But you know, there is a question that is far more important than whether my girls would live another week or even whether they'd live another day. The question is, when you do die, where will you spend eternity? Well, if I were to ask you, will you spend eternity with God in heaven, you should not be willing to accept an answer of, I hope so, or I think so. And I'm here to tell you that God was not willing to give an answer like, I think so, or I hope so. See, he didn't put in a place, put, he didn't put in place a system of salvation that required him to just sit back and wait and see if we could follow a list of regulations and laws well enough to make it. Or he didn't put in a system that would require us to perform all of the right sacraments or whatever, just do the right things enough so that he could let us into heaven. He didn't tell us to just do enough good things so the scales will balance out in your favor and then we can let you into heaven. Because sometimes a thing is just so important that you don't leave the results in the hands of somebody who just might fail. You certainly don't leave the results in the hands of somebody who is certainly going to fail. Just imagine your four-year-old is playing out in the yard. You're standing outside talking. And he starts chasing his ball right out into the middle of that busy street. Are you going to tell your five-year-old, oh, go get Bobby before he goes in the street? No, you're going to drop everything and you're going to run and you're going to grab him because this is too important to leave in the hands of somebody who just might not get there in time. Well, God, knowing that man was headed for an eternity, separated from him, took matters into his own hands. Back to chapter 4 now of Romans and down to verse 16. He says, that is why, remember, he has just made all these arguments on why salvation is by faith alone, is by grace that comes through faith alone. He says, that is why it depends on faith. 
That is, it is not by following the law, it's not by doing good deeds, it's not by giving enough money or performing the right ritual, it's not even by saying the right prayer, it is by faith. Just that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. Grace is something God does for you that you don't deserve and that you cannot do for yourself. It is completely the work of God, and you can only receive grace through faith. You can't buy it, you can't earn it, you can't work for it, you can't even pay for part of it. So he says, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. God took matters into his own hands so that his promise would be sure. It would be guaranteed. It was just too important to do it otherwise. Well, Paul speaks volumes more about this great salvation that God has provided for us in these first 11 chapters. And if you were to take all 11 and put them together, because that's the way these, probably, these people in Rome probably heard them. They were all read in a letter, and they were probably hanging on every word. When it got to the very end of those 11 chapters, they would likely be just standing there with their jaws hanging open going, wow, what an amazing God. He did that for us. This is the therefore. This is why Paul thinks he can now make a claim or a request like he does and expect people to respond positively. I beseech you, Therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Well, what was it he was asking them to do? Barnes, the guy who writes a commentary called Barnes Notes. You would think that would be a little book. It's just notes, but it's volumes. But he has an excellent explanation of what it is to present your bodies or present a sacrifice. He says, a sacrifice is an offering made to God as an atonement for sin or any offering made to him and his service as an expression of thanksgiving or homage. It implies that he who offers it presents it entirely, releases all claim or right to it, and leaves it to be disposed of for the honor of God. In the case of an animal, it was slain and the blood was offered. In the case of any other offering, such as a first fruits offering, it was set apart to the service of God, and he who offered it released all claim on it and submitted it to God to be disposed of at his will. <clears throat> and then he put a couple of qualifiers on there. He says, you do this in a way that is holy and acceptable to God. Holy means set apart. So what he's doing is saying, take your body, sacrifice it to God. That is, set yourself apart for God's use. 
and do it in a way that is acceptable to him. And that means there are no strings attached. It is given to God willingly, wholeheartedly, and completely. It would be no more acceptable to God for us to try to negotiate with him and say, here are the things that I will do for you, and here are the things that I won't do, than it would be for an Israelite to bring a lamb up to the temple, and as he's giving it to the priest, to start trying to negotiate with the priest. Can you imagine one of these guys coming up and saying, Mr. Priest, it's been a rough year. I can only afford to give you half of the lamb this year, so when you slaughter it, I'm going to take half of it back with me. doesn't work that way. That's not what a sacrifice is. Or he brings his lamb up to the altar and he says, Mr. Priest, I know that when you sacrifice this, it's used to feed the priests. That's their due. But, you know that one priest over there? I've never really liked him. You know, he's, he's kind of gruff, and he never seems to have time to talk with me or anything. I really don't want my lamb to, to feed his family. But that priest over there, he's, he's always friendly and nice. He's, he laughs at my jokes, and he's good with my kids. I really want my lamb to just go and feed his family. Doesn't work that way. That's not what a sacrifice is. And so it would not be acceptable for us in offering ourselves to God, say, Lord, here are the things that I'll do. Here are the things that I won't do. I'll go wherever you send me, so long as it's not too hot there, or so long as they don't have too much snow, or so long as they don't have big snakes or scary bugs or have to eat really weird food. We don't go before God and say, all right, Lord, now that I belong to you, I realize things have to change in my life. So I'll tell you what, I'm going to give up my smoking and my drinking, and then you can just ignore that language that I use when I'm at work, because, you know, I've got to fit in with the guys, and and I won't talk that way on Sundays. You don't negotiate with God. If he hasn't already, one of these days, Pastor John will be teaching about what it is to be a godly husband. And if you're like most of us husbands, you will see areas that you need to change. You don't go before God and say, Lord, I understand that I need to get this right. And I need to be the kind of husband that you want my wife to have. And I'll tell you what, I'm going to do that. And I'm going to start just as soon as you turn this woman into the godly wife I think I ought to have. You see, we're not allowed to negotiate with God. That's not what a sacrifice is. Paul is asking people to set them apart for the use of God with no strings attached. So what Paul is asking them to do is something rather dramatic. The reason he thinks they'll respond positively to that 
is because they now know how great the salvation is that he's provided for them. But it kind of begs a question. Why do we have to do any more? I mean, if I'm born again, it's already guaranteed that I'm going to spend eternity with God in heaven. So why do anything else? Well, at the end of that verse, 1 of chapter 12, it says, which is your spiritual worship? This making yourself a sacrifice to God, that is your spiritual worship. Now, that is a difficult phrase to interpret, and I think that's evidence of that is Went to four translation, and each one translates it a little bit differently. The NASB says it is your spiritual service of worship. The King James says it is your reasonable service. The NAIV says this is your true and proper worship. I like my, my German Schlachter 2000 calls it your vernünftiger Gottesdienst. Vernünftiger is a word that has the idea of being reasonable or appropriate. Gottesdienst is what they use for a worship service. When you go to church, they say they're going to Gottesdienst. I think a good way to look at it is this is the appropriate spiritual response. It is what you ought to do in response to what God has done. And it is more than just an intellectually sensible thing. It's not like you, got a, you had good service at a restaurant, and now you're trying to figure out what is the appropriate tip for the waitress. This is your spiritual service. This is how you worship God. And the appropriate way is to give yourself as a living sacrifice. So that that servant of God, the Joe Marinos, who seem to accomplish extraordinary things, I think they could be described well as simply ordinary people who are responding reasonably, appropriately, to an extraordinary God. But you know what? Missionaries themselves don't do extraordinary things. So how do you account for those extraordinary results that they got? Well, Paul addressed this this issue, and he did it by kind of picking on farmers. Do we have, are there any farmers here? We got a couple, okay. Well, my apologies, we're going to pick on farmers. And since Paul did it, that's okay. In 1 Corinthians 3, 7, he says, So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now, don't get me wrong, I have the utmost respect for farmers. Um, we, we had a number of work crews from America come to the camp. We would always ask people, what is your area of expertise You know, if we had an electrician or a tile layer or things like that, we would put them to work where they knew what they were doing. 
And often, quite often, we got guys who says, well, I'm, I'm just a farmer. And I would get all excited because I meant I could give him anything to do and they'd know how to do it. <laughs> they can usually fix most anything and they're hard workers. These are, these are guys that are, are good to have on your work crew. But the things that farmers do are not extraordinary. They plow their fields. You could probably learn to do that. They put fertilizer on them, and they plant seeds in them, and they fix their equipment. They do things. None of those things in and of themselves are extraordinary, but I'll tell you what is. That little seed that's dead that they stick in the dirt, God makes it come to life and grow and bear fruit, and that is extraordinary, and farmers can't do it, but God does. Well, missionaries also don't do extraordinary things. Sometimes they do hard stuff, like wandering through a jungle looking for people who might kill you. But people go and do those things just in the interest of science. Sometimes they go to lands and have to learn other cultures. Well, that's something that we're, getting, we're, we're going to be getting practice at because we're in a culture that's different than it was 10 years ago. And it's changing more rapidly all the time. We have to learn to adapt to a new culture. Sometimes they have to learn other languages. But, you know, people do that every day, too. There's nothing extraordinary about what missionaries do. But I'll tell you what is. When that missionary or that pastor or you explain the gospel to an unsaved person, God takes that seed of truth and implants it in their heart. And if he chooses, he will bring it to life. And they will grow and live eternally with him. And I could never do that. But God does that. One word of caution should probably interject when I, when I refer to us as ordinary people, might be being a little bit overly generous. Paul, in the um, passage I mentioned early, read in the, our presentation this morning, that's what it was, he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26 and 27, he said, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the things of the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. You know, should we ever get into a position where we begin to believe that we are accomplishing extraordinary things? Because people will tell you that you do, we have to keep a proper understanding of who is really accomplishing those extraordinary things. Hudson Taylor was uh, a very amazing guy. If you've never read a good biography on Hudson Taylor, strongly recommend it. It's, it's life-changing. He started out this China Inland Mission. He was a, a sickly young man who decided that he was going to reach those 
untold masses of people where nobody else was going. And he went not to the coastal cities where other missionaries were, but he went to the interior of China and he took on Chinese dress and culture and began to share the word of God there. And he struggled, barely was able to keep himself fed. But as time went on, God began to bless. And in the later days, he had founded the China Inland Mission and had more than 100 missionaries who were in China and in other places around the world, and they were supported and taken care of and were taking the gospel throughout China. Well, in those later days, Hudson Taylor, when he was back in the West, was a sought-after speaker, and everybody wanted to spend time with him. Well, he was riding one day in a carriage with a leader of the Scottish church. And that Scottish church leader said to Hudson Taylor, he says, you must often be conscious of the wonderful way God has prospered you in the China Inland Mission. He said, I doubt if any man living has had a greater honor. And Taylor just kind of put his head down. And after a, a moment or two, he he looked at his friend and he said quietly, you know what I sometimes think? I think that God was looking for someone small enough and weak enough to use so that all the glory would be his. And when he looked for that small, weak person, he found me. That's the attitude we have to keep. We're to give ourselves to be used of God, but it's he that will do the work. Well, who is it that's supposed to make this sacrifice? I've been talking about missionaries, but you know, Paul doesn't mention anything about missionaries here, but he does use one word several times in this, in this uh, verse. I'm going to read it to you once more. You'll, you'll catch what I'm getting at. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. If you have a good understanding of what God has done for you in providing your salvation, the appropriate, reasonable, spiritual worship for you is to give yourself as a living sacrifice with no strings attached. And yet when we even think about doing something like that, our old nature just screams out in rebellion. We start with all those what ifs. What if God sends me to some place that I'll just hate? What if he asks me to do something that I just don't know how to do? Or what if, and just fill in the blank with whatever it is that makes you afraid. But you know what? Our God is really, really smart. He's really, really powerful. If he gives you a job to do, he will equip you to do it in the way that he wants it done. If he sends you to a people that you right now can't even imagine being with, he will change your heart and you will love those people. 
I have to tell you, when, when it was first suggested that we go to Germany, Germany was nowhere near the top 10 list of places I'd like to live. I had visited there once and was not impressed. But I'll tell you, once we had determined that we would go there because that's where God was sending us, he changed our hearts. We couldn't think of any place else that we were willing and wanted to go. God doesn't drag people kicking and screaming to doing his will. He changes their hearts. See, our responsibility is not to try to figure out what will happen if we give ourselves over completely to God. Our responsibility is to answer two questions and answer them both positively. The first one is, do you know where you will spend eternity? Do you know for sure? And if your response to that is yes, then just think what God has done for you. And then answer the second question. Will you respond appropriately, reasonably, to an absolutely incredible, awesome, and extraordinary God? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. You always give us far more than you require of us. You never ask us to do things that you're not capable of equipping us for. And for that, we are grateful. Lord, our, our old nature that we still live with certainly rebels against the desire that we have to follow you completely. We ask that you would give us the, the strength and confidence and constant reminder of all that you've done for us that we might step out in faith and offer ourselves completely to you with no strings attached and then be amazed at the extraordinary things that you accomplish. We'll give you the honor and praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen.